Okay. Let's get started. This is lesson three of Have, Hold, and Cherish. Last lesson we spoke about. Last lesson we spoke about. Um, let's recap. The first lesson was what, what marriage is in the first place, or why to marry in the first place. And we said that marriage is mainly between two souls. That's the magic and beauty of it. And then all the rest is things that come as a result of that spiritual connection that a husband and wife have. But to make all those features that come as a result the main thing would be a mistake. That's, that's according to Torah's view. Then we have, uh, last week we spoke about, what was last week? Yeah, last week we debunked the myth that uh, sexual intimacy is something wrong or something that, you know, an evil, um, uh, uh, evil, something that you need, what's the what's expression? Able need, able, something necessary that is evil. Anyways, um, we debunked that myth and we said that no, that um, intimacy is actually the, one of the most holiest endeavors that a person can have is compared to the holy of holies, in the times of the temple. And this lesson, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna elaborate a little more about the, the mikveh aspect and and the, and the nida um, period that the, that the woman has. Um, so we're going to start with page 56. And the question that we start off is, is your love after marriage? So, you know, that we all know, or we all see how people before getting married, they're all like in, on top of each other, but after they get married, then we don't see that anymore. And the question is, is there love after marriage? So we're going to do learning exercise. And we're going to see what the Torah has to say about it. What would you say are the most central mitzvot in Judaism? Rate the following on a scale of 1 to 10. With 1 being last in, least important, fundamental. And 10 being most important or fundamental. So take a minute, half a minute. And just give it a rating. What do you think it's like, you know? Like what I find the importance of it, or like yeah, okay. what do you find? Okay, whatever you wrote, just you know, we're gonna revisit this after we we elaborate a little more on 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 taharat hamishpacha on family purity. So that's gonna be the topic of this lesson, and that's about the the the, the topic or the relationship between husband and wife, when it, or moreover the responsibility that the wife has when it comes to family purity and the, uh, the advantages or the good things that come with keeping a house according to what the Torah says. So there are a lot of reasons why, a lot of reasons why um, after marriage, maybe the passion is not, is not as much as it was before marriage. And we'll see what the, what, what, what science has to say. So um, Nate, I want to read text one. Yeah. Even if there's no perfect definition for a sexless marriage, everyone seems to agree that they're common. Newsweek estimates that about 15 to 20% of couples are in one, and sexless, sexless marriage is the topic of, of myriad new books and plenty of articles and columns. Back in 2003, Newsweek's cover blurred, we're not in the mood, and the story hasn't gone away. This June, the New York Times reported that about 15% of married couples have not had sexual relations in the past six months to a year. According to Judith Steinhardt, a clinical sexologist in New York City, 
problems in a marriage like lack of trust, anxiety, financial issues, misunderstandings, pressure from children, all can impact a couple's sexual patterns. The question, of course, is whether refraining from sex causes other problems or if the other problems stop the sex in the first place. It's a cycle. In other words, one can exacerbate the other, and before you know it, no one can remember what came first. Uh, question for discussion. Why do you think sexual desire often tends to fade in marriage, even for couples that continue to love each other very much? Is passionate marriage an oxymoron? Okay, so apparently big number of people, when it comes to intimacy after marriage, it goes down. And either that is or that exacerbates the problems within the marriage itself. And the question is, why? Why is it, what do you guys think? What is the this phenomenon that, you know, apparently once you're there, something that you wanted all the time, once you're there, you should be so, so happy or even more passionate than before. When I talk to my friends that are in, in relationships, um, whether they're, I guess, dating or married, the thing that usually comes up is um, like complacency or maybe laziness or just, you know, it becomes another thing you have to do in the day, almost like a chore. To be intimate? Yeah. My friends will be like, oh, I haven't done anything with my boyfriend in, in three weeks. I'm just too tired or too lazy or just no, don't want I to. I feel like or... that's the end of a really, personally, I'm just like, I'm, especially because like, we've all talked about like, I just don't come in and stuff like he's someone with somebody that's, I, I kind of, I know that sounds awful, I expect that in a relationship. And when that's, I've always seen like ends of relationship happening, like when that's no longer happening. Okay, so you're alluding to what it said in, in, in text number one. You know, that's apparently scientific nowadays. So is, is it even possible to have passion in marriage? You know, it's apparently once you get married, you're, you're, the clock is ticking out. It's, it's well, ticking, you know. It's just a matter of time until, until you get divorced. If... There's well, other I ways think... to be passionate. Yeah. Sorry? Was... There's other ways to be passionate. I okay. was going to add to that, yeah. Like, Elaborate. I, I... Like, it, it doesn't always have to be sexually oriented for a relationship to be passionate or have, you know, is it like to be fulfilling? Right. Yeah, as I said, there are different levels. Like, there's the spiritual component, there's the emotional, there's the intellectual, there's the physical, there's the sexual. There's so many different layers to a relationship and what makes it um, fruitful. But it has so. to have a combination of all those things. You can't just, like, go three weeks without one of those things. It's like, it's like, unless like the person's out of town, but when the person's out of town, you're still trying to, you know, communicate and talk and like, you know, and, and find like, you know, like it's, if it feels like anything you are doing with that person when they're not there still feels like a chore, that's a problem. But like a relationship is a balance of all of those things. And if one of those things isn't happening, unless of course it's prior to marriage and you're waiting for one of those things, that's, that's totally different thing. But outside of that, it's if one of those things haven't happened for three weeks, and that could have been like you know, you've done something nice together, you've, you've cuddled, or you've watched a movie, where you've had a great conversation, or something, you know, like if you haven't done any of these one one of those things in three weeks, that sounds like the end of a relationship to me. And you like, especially if like you're living in the same city, and you see each other regularly. Makes sense. Going back to Josh's point. Um, I, I, it's a good argument to say that, you know, that there's a lot of other re- reasons of how to be passionate. But in the relationship of husband and wife, if the core, if at the core, their husband and wife, because their, you know, their relationship is so deep that it's even intimate. So, so the question is, shouldn't, shouldn't the passionate and intimacy be a big Focus. Although you can be passionate in many other ways as well. I'm not saying that. But you don't need to be husband and wife to be passionate about baseball. 50,000 people could go to the Braves and be all passionate about baseball also. When it comes to, to intimacy, there's only one person in the world. So it's a little bit odd. But not odd. It's, it's, it might be a little oxymoron if we say that passionate marriage, the passion is not about the intimacy. So I think this is, the, this is really what we're tackling here. This is really what we are you know, slicing... The, the, the passion and, to, and, to, uh, and see what the Torah has to say. A lot of times when we learn, um, or in Judaism in general, every time, a lot of times when there are questions, the question doesn't necessarily mean that the, there is a big problem. 
that not necessarily means like, look, there's a really big problem that doesn't make sense, and now we are questioning it. A lot of times in Judaism, a question is a way to open up a deeper dimension or a deeper explanation. So although there are many, many good reasons or many, many answers that we could have, but at the same time, we, the, the question is, Okay, so what, what, what is a message? Okay, so let's, let's dive deeper. Let's see what's, what the Torah has well, to say. Also, you should also talk with your partner when it's been a relatively long time since you've been intimate. Well, I hope that someone who's intimate is husband and wife, and they should be living together. That would be the ideal. You know, intimacy is a connection of two people that it goes all the way so, so deep between those two people that they're even intimate. Intimacy, it's not, as, as we said last time, we, we made a distinction between intimacy and sex. One is an action and could be, you know, perform and done and get better. And, and nowadays you have people who recommend 10 ways to be better, you know. That, that's an action, but that's a really external, that's a really pr- performance. But then we have intimacy, and and and, a, and to, to our way is that people who are intimate have sex. Not sex is not something that transaction that you know that you might do with people. There were two people are consenting to it, so they they're together. At least that shouldn't be the case. So you know, people who are to, we'll see we'll see what the Torah has to say, and and what you're saying, Mina, also has um, has 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 the logic to it. Okay, so let's move along. Learning exercise. Uh, before we start the learning exercise, I, I'm just going to uh, preface that when it says over here in figure 3.2, the header is love, affection, desire, and passion. Uh, Hasidic explain, Hasidus um, develops this idea that love comes from closeness or affection comes from closeness and desire and passion comes from um, distance. In other words, the fact that you're distanced to, distant to something, that is what triggers passion and desire. Because, you know, you want money, but once you have that money, you don't want that, at least that money, you don't want it anymore. You don't have desire for that money anymore. You want more of it. You want more, you have a different amount. What happened? You know, why do you want more? Because that other amount is still distant to you, so that's where you have desire. But then you have love that it's triggered by being close you know when you're close to someone so you don't want to go anywhere else you're not chasing anything else this this is where you want to be so love is triggered by closeness and desire and passion is triggered by uh, distance so we're going to do learning exercise what words do you associate with love and what words do you associate with desire there's three um Examples of you here, but fill in the rest if you have any. Okay, we might seem that these two columns are opposite to each other, or at least to have them both at the same time. Because if you want to have a life that is full of love, affection, desire, and passion, in one relationship, it might be a little bit uh, um, conflicting. So let's see text number two. Mina, you have to read? Just give it one second. It's you can, can, okay, uh, Josh, you want to read text two? Yep. We all share a fundamental need for security, which propels us towards or committed relationships in the first place. But we have an equally strong need for adventure and excitement. Modern romance promises that it's possible to meet these two distinct sets of needs in one place. Still, I'm not convinced. Today, we turn to one person to provide what an entire village once did, a sense of ground, grounding, meaning, and continuity. At the same time, we expect our committed relationships to be romantic as well as emotionally and sexually fulfilling. Is it any wonder that so many relationships crumble under the weight of it all? So in your mind, what would be the ideal? And before we go ahead, what would be the, or how do you manage these two, these two 
um, forces, the force of love and affection and, you know, being close and then desire and passion that it's from, from distance. Or maybe the, you know, the last like, line is. Yeah, the, the, this was interesting because I think about, um, like I'll use my, like a friend of mine, for example, like uh, she'll complain that, oh, all my relationships recently have been in the desire passion category where it might be um, like a yearning for something more physical or like lust, something that is fading really quickly. Um, versus then you have, I have friends who um, really get that love and affection from a partner um, but I think the interesting thing is, um, I think a lot of the times it's the intention going into the relationship that kind of sets the stage for whether something may be a little more lustful or for like passion or desire versus something that's a little more, um, centered around like that closeness of, um, like emotional connectedness or, um, like larger levels of intimacy, things like that. So. Um, I feel like when a lot of people think about why their relationships fail, it's because maybe they do put a lot of emphasis on that category where it's um, lust and quickly fading and there's not really that connection there that connects two people together, which I think speaks a lot about the other um, texts about divorce and things like that. I think the intention of why people get in relationships impacts whether they last and impacts the connection they have and how they grow together or grow apart, things like that. Interesting. So the, the way you basically, the, people set the tone and yeah. turn their relationship, like either it's going to be this way or that way. That's what he's saying? Uh, kind of. It's it, Maybe they're not intentionally setting it that way, but I feel like um, depending on the circumstances which people meet, um, you know, like I feel like in 2021, uh, a girl might say, oh, I met a guy at a club. Like that kind of, as an example of this, like, uh, oh, like he's the one for me, or we're like, we, it's so fun, we had a lot of fun, whatever. I mean, that's inherently, you know, not going to last or have anything beyond just what a lustful night out is versus someone actually getting to know someone, get to know them emotionally, know about their like their life and getting to who they are as a person, their character, the more deeper intimate uh, moments, I think, allow for a longer lasting relationship. Right. And yeah. the intimacy and all that physical intimacy that comes with it after you get to know someone that is a really strong connection, I think that almost makes the physical intimacy or whatever else um, that much stronger versus people who start off like lustful. I think that it inherently gives, uh, um, it, it, it won't allow for the relationship to last beyond just that lust. It's like a mixed message. Yeah, mixed message, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, okay, so it is, it is uh, something that, you know, even people today, people you know struggle with. So we'll see what the Torah's perspective, what the Torah's message is. Again, the Torah is the same word as Mora, and it's not just a old document, rather is a instruction for life, even for today, or precisely for today, every day. Text, um, we're gonna start with Taharat Hamishpacha 101. And this is gonna be the basics of family purity, or also what is known um, when the woman is nida and when a woman has a period. But this is the main, this is the general topic. We're gonna see the basics, although uh, it, it can become really complex. Uh, the, the detail, the detail laws about it, we're not gonna go into the detail laws. We're just gonna see more or less the basic outline and where this comes from and, and how does it apply today. Uh, text three. This okay. I'm gonna read it. the spiritual powers of taharat hamishpacha. I'm gonna translate taharat hamishpacha means tahara means a pure, and mishpacha means family. So it's family purity. Uh, the fact that it's called the name of this um, of this concept or of this responsibility that the woman has shows how. Power, how much power the woman has on her, on, on the household. Because it's not about the woman, it's about the whole entire family. So her state of being is something that impacts the whole entire family. It's not like something specific to the woman. And then we're going to see more details how, how this translates. Okay, the spiritual powers of Taharat HaMishpacha are a great responsibility God gave the Jewish woman. But by the same token, a great compliment. Taharat HaMishpacha entrusts a Jewish woman with the spiritual well-being of her husband, children, and grandchildren. 
This is precisely why this mitzvah is called Taharat HaMishpacha, family purity. Yeah, I just want to have. Instead of Taharat HaIsha, purity of the woman, the keeping of Taharat HaMishpacha affects the entire family. Now we kind of see why, uh, if you just go at the, the beginning and on and, and, and the chart, I don't know what was the rate that you gave it, mikvah, family purity, but from here we start to see how important family purity is. We might get further on more details. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see uh, more over there. Okay, uh, text. How does tarat hamishpacha work? We're gonna see the source of it and the application. Neta, I wanna read text. Read text four, five, and six. Okay. Uh, when a woman has a discharge of blood where blood flows from her body, she shall be a nida for seven days. And a woman in the ritually impure state of nida, you shall not approach for sexual relations. She shall count seven days and then she shall be purified. Yeah, nida is the state of the woman when she has the flow. Nida, the translation means separation. That's what it is. It means that the husband and wife cannot be intimate. And... Once the woman has, the cycle starts, so... That's when the seven-day starts? That's, there, there is two periods. There is a period of the flow, and then there is a period of seven clean days. So what if a woman has a... So technically, it could be like you only have two weeks out of a month to have sex with your wife. That's correct. <clears throat> so there is five days, minimum of five days... When, when it's called the, the flow period, in other words, when there is... The, the, what if she has a short period? Never the day, for, either for halachic reasons, they set five days minimum. Although someone, a woman might have a one day period, there is, there is details, we're not gonna get into well, that. statistically, yeah, statistically. But for whatever, a lot of reasons, we could get, the Talmud goes, gets into it, but, and then the, the, and the Shulchan Aruch also, but uh, five days is the minimum. And after five days, or once the flow uh, stops, so the woman uh, checks herself through a cloth and makes sure that there's nothing, there's no more flow happening. And the seven days, the seven clean days starts right after that. Throughout the seven days, woman checks herself if there is any blood, um, if, if the day is indeed clean. And after seven days, the woman goes to the mikvah, and then uh, marital relations get resumed. So it's about minimum 12 days, but it's like about two weeks out of a month that a woman is in that state of, pure, of, of uh, impurity. Mm. Now, we learned, we learned the, the what, what is tarat mishpacha. We learned the how it does it work, but now we're going to learn. We're going to develop a little bit more into the why. Ultimately, why why is it that it works this way? Interest, um, something fascinating is that the scientists nowadays they say that the fact that the woman has a period is a fluke of fluke of nature, because if you see any other mammals, they don't have a period. We're talking about dogs have periods. Female dogs absolutely have periods they for do. three to four weeks. Uh-huh. Most female mammals have periods. What are you talking about? Want to read the? Well, you want to? Yeah. Well, I also want to remind you when the Torah was written. No, no, no. This is a scientist. This is a scientific study. Do most female mammals have periods? Okay. I'll. I'll. We'll get into that. We'll. I'll. I'll pull out the the study and we'll see. We'll put a, we'll analyze into that. Yeah. That's like the reason female dogs get fixed is because you don't want them bleeding everywhere. Um, I'm, I wasn't aware of that. I don't have a pet, but thanks for letting me know. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, double check that. Anyways. Um, you have no idea how according, you, just, you actually thought there was no other mammals that had periods. Well, I, I, I don't have too much experience with, uh, with dogs or other mammals, but from the scientific study, apparently they don't. That's what, that's what got me, the scientific part, is that that's scientifically disproven. Okay, so let's say, okay, maybe that, maybe all mammals also have, but ideally, ideally it would be better if a woman didn't have a period. 
Yes. I mean, and there's no <laughs> sense, not only that, but biologically, there, there shouldn't be a reason why. In other words, scientists could find a reason for every way that... that Besides the, the, the shedding human... of my uterine wall once a month? Besides it letting you know you're not pregnant? No. I why? would say also, you know what, if you're sexually active, it's a great way to know you're not pregnant. Even though apparently sometimes that doesn't make a difference either. Okay, I didn't follow that. But the point is that it would be ideal or would be better design if, if the woman didn't have a period. And simply the egg uh, just waited there. Because, you once... know, women are vital, you know, genetically designed that way. We, we were genetic experience that just happened one day. Right. So when did that happen more specifically? Uh, well, you want to go back to Adam and Eve? Or... Yeah, that's exactly where it happened. Right. When the woman was cursed, that's what they say is that I, I say they because so I don't remember if, if I read our, it in the scientific. Our curse, our curse was a period. So, you know, question, we already have to do childbirth, labor, um, everything else. Childbirth, yes. Uh, labor, uh, childbearing, uh, now periods. And then, what was your punishment? My specifically? Yeah, what was a man's punishment? Just know that men are afraid to have they, they are. They, they, yeah, it's a scientific fact. Not one male birth control study has been completed because they can't handle the Okay, let's here. let's keep focus here. Um, the 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 man is to make a living. Yeah. So that's your punishment, even though significantly more women make more money than men. That's your punishment. Is you maybe make more money than I do. You're, you do it. What do you do? You 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 bring in detailed cases, or you want to study? You want to, or you want to analyze? I'm just asking. You're saying the punish was you're supposed to be yeah. the provider. That's clearly not a thing. And I still have a period, and I still have to carry babies and stuff. So why do you get to forego your punishment? Who, who's you? Men. Who's men? I'm sorry. Is that not what you identify as? Yeah, but when you say men, you're talking about the whole society. Because if we look at the society as large, yeah, men are the providers. Okay, yes, but men still don't, but some women are, so that seems as though... women are not. Okay. And a lot of women don't have kids either. They, they choose not to have kids Yeah, either. but they still have to get a period until they go through menopause. Okay. So you're saying it's a disadvantage? I think that... that Maybe you could crappy, add it... I think that was a crappy punishment that you received because... I think that, you, I think that we were not really understanding the 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 whole story of Adam and Eve. We're just taking it at a, as a commentary here and we're judging without really analyzing it. So I don't think it's justice for... So in scientific, so since there's no scientific reason besides the actual explanation as to why I shed my uterine all once a month. Um, Let's talk about women and men. Um, so the theory is, since there's no scientific reason, it's because Eve ate an apple back in the day. Well, if you want to dilute it to that story, yes. If you're interested in something more... I am interested in something more Okay, so then we're going to do another course about it. You know, being punished for something I didn't do. We're going to, we're going to do another course about it, yes. Okay. But if you want to, if you want to have a simple, fast, uh, fast um, answer is yes. And that's all scientists can come up with? No, scientists cannot come up. Scientists cannot prove any of this. Scientists cannot prove Adam and Eve. I know, I'm just saying, like, so there's just, outside of that, they can't prove Scientists anything. don't have answers to, what, to the why. Some, scientists can tell you how. They can tell you how, not the why. They could see, you know, they could analyze whatever exists. They don't, they don't know the reason behind it or the behind the scenes. Anyways, we got sidetracked. Um, let's go back to the topic. We're saying that... Um, Okay, we read already the... Okay, so now we're reading more of the why. There's three types, page 62, there's three types of, in general, throughout the whole Torah, there's three types of mitzvot, three types of commandments. And those could be divided into three general categories. The category number one is mishpatim. Mishpatim is logical laws, meaning laws that even societies today would come up and would um, codify. So, you know, like when the Torah says not to kill or not to steal, people could argue and say, you know, that's not really novelty of Torah. That's also something that societies would agree on. And then we have eduyot or eidot. 
that those are testimonial mitzvahs. In other words, I wouldn't come up by myself to, or societies would not come up by their own conclusion, their own logic to, to celebrate Passover with matzah on wine. But now that the Torah says that the way to celebrate Passover is with, with matzah and wine, it's something, it's something that we understand. We could, we could you know, grasp the idea. Okay, this is the way to celebrate something that happened. For example, Shabbat, Passover, or any other mitzvot that testify or reminds us about something that happened or something um, in the world. And then we have the third category, which is the highest, and that is the super-rational decrees. And those are the mitzvot that we do that we have no reason and no idea why. We don't know the why behind it. We just know that that's what God wants from us. That, more specifically, that's what God needs from us in this world. So although like eating, not mixing, not mixing um, meat and dairy doesn't make any sense, nevertheless, we do it because that's a, what God needs from us. Logic behind it is that, one of the explanations behind it is that if we would only do things that we are agree with, or that you know it makes sense, so our connection with Hashem would be a logical connection. In the same way as we we have a logical connection or a, a, consent, a connection that makes sense with business partner, uh, um, I don't know, a, a colleague or a friend, makes sense to be to have to have keep up that relationship. So then, um. And, and we'll apply the same to God. And things that make sense, we do. But things that don't make sense, we're not going to do. So the relationship that we'll have with God is something that is very um, logical. Very limited to our understanding. But then, if we do things in a way of chok, if we behave and do what Hashem wants from us in a way of irrational, so then the, our connection with Hashem is a connection that supersedes any logic or any... A reason. For example, you know, when a husband and wife are married and the wife needs something from the husband or vice versa, so the other party does it not because it makes sense, even though it doesn't make any sense, but nevertheless, the connection is so... Right, so that's the reason, because it's your partner, because the connection that you have is much more greater than what it makes sense than what the other person needs. So these are the three categories of, of, of in general, that we have in mitzvahs. And... Where question for discussion is to which category do you think the laws of Tahrat Amishbach belong? Any? Okay. Yeah. It's exactly where they belong. Tarat Amishbach on all in general, so all the all the laws of, of pure and impure, they all belong to the same category. The category of chok doesn't really make uh, any sense because uh, purity and impurity, as we spoke last week, it's not about something being dirty that we need to clean. You know, the, the woman doesn't go to the mikvah because because it has any connotation to dirt or to unclean. That's not the it's more of a purification of the soul, not a correct. It's more of a but but the question is a soul. A soul falls more in the category of chok, something that is super rational. It's not something that we could really, although See, we can, we can feel the soul. Someone who's alive. By feel, I mean by actual like touch, not right. feel with your own soul. Correct. We cannot really grasp it with any of our senses, unless someone is like really, really emotional sense. But that's about it. Yeah, but even yeah, emotional sense is still like from the five senses yeah. is the most, the less physical. Yeah, you know, the, it's the, the least physical. The least physical of the senses because the soul is something that is more in the irrational. So the same thing is everything that is uh, regarding Tuma and Tara, everything that is regarding with um, um, pure and impure falls in the same category of something that is illogical. Why, why specifically that is pure and pure? That is because God commanded. And I think we, um, I didn't mention, but if you go back to the learning exercise um, 3.1, basically the first one, that what category does the mitzvah of Mikra fall into? So now that we said, uh, and we said the, the tone that the Tarat HaMishpacha brings purity for the whole family, you can imagine that takes priority. You can imagine it takes priority and it's even expressed in the 
halacha, it's even expressed in the code of Jewish law, that if a city, you know, they have enough funds to either buy a Torah scroll or to build a mikvah, what should they do with that fund, with that money? They should, they should build a mikvah. So they should build a mikvah because the, without, without a Jewish people, no one, will, no one will learn the Torah. And so this idea of, of mikvah, although, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, it might be taboo or things that we're going to talk about, but the importance of it is, is all the way up there that we even sell a Torah in order to keep these laws. Wait, I have a question. Why are there certain, I don't know that many uh, synagogues that have mikvahs, generally speaking. There's usually one in a town. There's not usually a bunch. So we're talking about like Torah scroll versus... It's kind of like the whole community will put in for that one. I think so they have, it's kind of like the, what's the thing that koshers all the, the like silverware or whatever? Right, so when it comes to mikvah specifically, there is, I would say, three types of mikvah. There's a mikveh of, of, of silverware that you mentioned, and that could be found, depends on the town, you know, if the community wants, because at the end of the day, you could technically use a river or any other body of water. Then you have a, a men's mikveh, that is also a gathering of water to purify men. And then you have a woman's mikveh, that a woman's mikveh, it's much more stringent, the, in other words, since the purity is much greater, so the waters and the laws of how to bring the waters, hopefully we're going to see in the end, is also a different way. And, and sadly, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the move, the, like, the mainstream Judaism, I would say... They don't really have men's mikvahs anymore, do they? There are going, some. I was going to ask, in what context do men use mikvahs? I was to say, most men I know who've used a mikvah, it's usually a body of water they've used. Right. I, I don't think I personally know. I, no, there's not one in Atlanta. There's not a men's mikvah. Is there? Yes, there is. Is there? Yeah. Sorry, I only know about the women's one. Correct. So men's mikvah yeah. is not as stringent as women's mikvah, but there's a f the, specifically those who learn the, those who learn Hasidic philosophy go to mikvah every day. Um, it's a it's a way to purify yourself before praying. Mm -hmm. The first. Where's the men's mikvah? Beth Jacob. Beth Jacob has a Same mikvah. with the. Oh, they're both there. You yeah, know, but women's mikvah is. No, I know they're two very separate. Not only physically, like like quality wise. Uh, women's no. mikvah is like spa, beautiful. Well, that's because there's a. Like I said, we can't just use a body. But if there's no other option, obviously. But it's a man. If there could be plenty of other options, and a body of water is still just just as fine as anything else. So, so the details of the laws. Details of the laws may vary, but the general point is that the the importance of women's going to mikveh is in the it's in the Torah, it's in the code of Jewish law. It's all the way we read it before in the in the in the in the verses of the Torah. But men going to mikveh is, although it's very important, is a custom, and not everyone, not all, not all congregations or not all um, um, denominations of Judaism um, recognize it. I recognize it, but they're actively on it. Um, and when you said about mikvah, so I think the mainstream Judaism, specifically main, mainstream like American Judaism, didn't really catch on. It wasn't something like maybe glamorous. Um, I think <laughs> no. I think sound glamorous to you? No, but I think the the, the reason why not is because there was a, mis, a misconception when it came to to what the concept is. Instead of really knowing it, it was associated with uh, with with something dirty or something that you know. Um, that had a bad connotation to it. It was, uh, you know, I'm not gonna lie, especially because I grew up in an Orthodox, in a very, you know, a very Orthodox community. And when I thought about a woman going to the mikvah, I thought about dirtiness. I didn't think about just like, you know, the woman's not dirty. It's she's just, you know, purifying her soul, just like you do every year on Yom Kippur. And that didn't make me dirt. I'm not a dirty person because I asked for forgiveness for doing something on Yom Kippur. But I, it, it, what we were talking about earlier is unfortunately sometimes. Things are not communicated well, especially. So yeah, I definitely didn't think, but I also have friends who grew up in other countries who they're like, and I, I've talked to them about this, they're like, no, we, we knew what it was. Right. And it's much significantly more common. Yeah, purification, by the way, purification of, of the woman is not the soul. The soul doesn't need any purification. It's the, it's the, the body of the woman that right. has a purification. Yeah, but. That just, just to make that clear. And uh, just 
closing your point, every city has a mikvah. Like one of the first things when, when Chabad Shluchim, Chabad rabbis, like they go to foreign countries, one of the first thing they make sure there is, is a mikvah. That's a little bit the, the back end of a religious community because you know, it, usually the, pres- the person is married and is aware and it's like, there's a lot of steps to take for someone to actively go to mikvah. But the importance of it is, is as great as the Sefer Torah. Now, um, Sefer Torah is... Or you need a mikvah for a conversion. Correct, but you don't, need, you don't need to be in your town. You could you travel to Israel, it. finish conversion, and come back. You know, at the end of the day, there are... I think here in Atlanta, there's about, I would say, between five and seven mikvahs. Like, women, mm-hmm. specifically women mikvahs. Really? Like between five and seven. Are yeah. there more than one in Toko? Oh, yeah. Really? Sandy Spring has one, Alpharetta has no, one. No, I'm saying is there more than one in Toko Hills? One more than one more than Oh, in Toko Hills, I don't know. I'm, sh- I'm sure, I, I know of three. Uh, maybe maybe seven is stretching it. Uh, between three and five. I'm not sure the number. Like, I, I'm not aware of three. One, one female. There's one in Toko Hills for sure. There's one in Sandy Springs for sure. And there's one in <laughs> Alpharetta for sure. If there is more, I think there are more. Um, and and uh, details, we have to check. We have to double see and... Uh, one of the things as well, uh, if you guys went to Israel, and if you guys went to Temple Mount, I don't know if you remember seeing, but there was like a lot of um, mikvahs mm-hmm. all around Temple Mount. You see, like archaeological, like archaeologists, they found one mikvah here, another mikvah here. Why? I mean, because back in the day, when the when 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 even men had to have this pure state need to be in this pure state in order to eat from the fruit or from the sacrifices of the temple. So mikvahs were really high demand. Like, you needed a mikvah. If not, you didn't come to the party, you know. <laughs> now, nowadays... It's, it's like a vaccination card. Uh, kind of, by like, but, but the, the other opposite, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not something negative, it's something positive. And, and, and so nowadays, I think the fact that there is, like, more, more of a niche to, a, to the mikvah nowadays, so then maybe it's not as much known... But the importance of it is as much as having a secretary, and as we say, so even even greater than that. Okay, um, text seven. Neta, you want to read? The laws of family purity are a divine ordinance. It is difficult. It is a difficult commandment, a discipline that makes demands on our time, our psyche, and our emotions. It is a force at odds with the flesh, a way of life that the average person would not likely choose or devise. It calls for willful suspension of self-determination, the subservience of our most intimate desires to the bidding of a higher authority. And therein lies the mitzvah's potency, the knowledge that it is sourced in something larger than the self, that it is not based on, that it is not based on the emotions or subjective decision of one or the other, allows taharat, mishpachat, to work for the mutual benefit of woman and husband. Ironically, this unfathomable mitzvah reveals its blessings to us more than almost any other in daily palpable ways. Its rewards are commensurate with the challenge of its observance. Yeah, we're going to see even more like what's the benefit of Tarat HaMishpacha. But before we go ahead, I was just going to finish that idea that we said that there are super rational commandments and then there are commandments that make sense that we could all understand. And just imagine, you know, a, a father and a kid. If the father, father or the kid asks the father, why do we, I don't know, why don't you want the, the, the cup to spill? And so the father says, well... I want you to drink it so, you know, uh, I don't want it to spill. Now, the father also knows that if he spills the cup, so then the, the, the tablecloth is going to get dirty. And then, and then the, the, the stain is not going to go out. And the tablecloth, they got it from the grandparents and came all the way from Europe. So in other words, the father only gives to the child what the child is going to be able to understand and doesn't overwhelm him with the real reason behind it. No, there is a real reason behind it, and then there is a reason that the child can understand. Same thing is when it comes to these three categories that we spoke before. You have to reverse the, 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 the levels. In other words, there is the way or the commandment or the mitzvah that the way that God understands it. And, and in that dimension, we're never going to be able to understand. There is some of the mitzvahs that God is able to show us and say, and, and, and our logic is able to understand and grasp that idea also. And there is even some mitzvahs that are, um, sorry, there's a mitzvah of, of eidos, meaning the testimonials that I would not come up with myself, I would not come to, come to the conclusion, but my brain is able to understand once you show it to me. And then there is other 
commandments that I'm able to understand right away, even if God didn't tell me to do so. The point is, what I want to say is that the fact, the hook factor, this irrational um, factor that the mitzvahs have, it's not only specifically for one type of cooking. It's actually all the, all the mitzvot at the end of the day, they have this irrational um, ingredient in it. And by us even doing something that is logical, we still connect to something that is much greater than or beyond logic. But some mitzvahs we could see and we can understand also with our brains and our understanding. And some mitzvahs are exclusively, specifically the mitzvot of Chok, that we don't really grasp it and we don't really understand. That's the, 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 the distinction I wanted to make. Okay. Um, benefits of Tarat HaMishpacha. Although we may just mention that, you know, the reason of Tarat HaMishpacha in the first place is an illogical or beyond logic reason. Nevertheless, we see that there are um, benefits. And this will be kind of answering the question that we started, if it's even possible to have a passionate marriage or a passionate marriage is oxymoron. Question for discussion. Based on what you know about Tarat HaMishpacha, what are some rewards and benefits to a couple's relationship that you think may result from adhering these laws? Now that we mentioned more or less what Tarat HaMishpacha is and how it works, do you see any benefits? Um, I think it allows for um, um, how do I say this like it's like intentional restraint it's like this idea of um, serving a purpose or being intentional I think that helps that can help a relationship be stronger and closer um, when there's intention behind something. Both uh, both parties understand the intention behind something, um, and with that, like the the sentence that it mentioned here about um, its rewards are commensurate with the challenge of its observance. I think that it shows um, it goes it's it shows that there's a greater meaning behind just the physical or the sexual. It's like the the reward of going through this process is the, the, the greater good of a family and just having a family in general is such a mitzvah. So, you know, it's just getting outside of yourself and recognizing the bigger picture, I think. So you're saying more like goal oriented? Um, yeah, um, but not in a, um, not in a, like a rigorous or kind of a, um, anything negative, I think that being goal-oriented can be um, really positive. And in this case, it, I feel it keeps, um, I don't want to say keeps things in check, but it just, I feel like it, it's it almost like a way of a, really, a couple to um, check in with one another as a, a way of, yeah, yeah I think I that's think, how I describe it. Yeah, it's a good definition. <laughs> yeah. Keep things in check. And we'll see, uh, specifically what the Talmud has to say and other commentaries about um, keeping or having this you know, back and forth between husband and wife, between the Nida state and the pure and impure state. Okay, text eight. Josh, Mina, text eight, okay. Um, Rabbi Meir taught, why did the Torah mandate that a Nida should be forbidden to her husband for seven days? Because otherwise being continuous contact with his wife, he might become disenchanted with her. The Torah therefore ordained, let her be in Yadah for seven days in order that she shall be beloved by her husband as on the day she entered the Chabah. Sorry, I just... Totally disagree. I think if your wife having a period makes you grossed out by her, you probably shouldn't be married. I think you I think you missed the point. It's not the period factor. It's the distance. When a woman has a period, there is and there's distance between husband and wife. So then it's not the 
not the period, but the distance that, that, that between husband and wife gives, or as you said, puts things in check. You know, keeps a, keeps a check and balance of, of you know, what, what they're up to with each other. More of an, we'll see more on an emotional way, not only, um, not only in a, on a, on a physical way. So we see the Talmud right away says that the fact that there is a distance, as we said at the beginning, that creates passion. Passion comes from distance. So if you want to have a relationship, or if you want to have a marriage that is loved, that is full of love and affection and passion and, and, and intimacy, well, you need to give space for both. You need to give space for love and affection, but you also need to give space for passion and intimacy. And if you only have one of them, if you're together all the time, so then yes, the passion and the affection, the passion and the intimacy is gonna fade away, as we saw all the all the studies, and and and, and if you only have the other other extreme, so then, so then uh, then, then it also is not gonna work, you know. Without love and affection, uh, main one of the main things of a marriage is missing. So someone might say, okay, you know, I, I could do it on my own. I could do it on my, you know, when. I don't need the Torah to be telling me to be distant. I could, we could set our own boundaries one day yes, one day no. The problem usually with that is that the same way as logically we set the boundary, we could logically undo the boundary for a good reason. So unless the Torah is commanding us, in other words, something higher than our mutual um, 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 decision of behaving or giving space, something that the Torah is saying, so that is what ultimately gives a proper balance, checks and balance. I was going to say, I think that having that component of like a higher purpose or a spiritual purpose um, is almost like that way of checking in, of saying, okay, like this is something that is asked of us. Let's use this time to um, continue to get to know each other on another level versus just the... That's going to be next page. Okay. Next page is going to be about you know, not overwhelming the relationship with physical contact. Because it's really easy when, you know, when, when, the, when the couple is not getting along, it's really easy to hug, kiss, and, you know, forget about it and, and move on. Yeah, but you're overwhelming the, the problem with physical contact. You're not really resolving it. In time of, 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 of separation, it's the ideal time. It doesn't mean that the husband and wife are not closer anymore. It's the opposite. The, the, the closeness now needs to be expressed in more creative ways. You cannot still, you know, a husband cannot and wife cannot kiss and make up and move on. It's not gonna work, you cannot kiss. So, you know, if there's a problem, if something comes up, then the husband needs to open up and, you know, emotions need to be put on the table. And, and that's what really creates or gives space for a much deeper relationship to grow. But that's gonna be the, the beloved friends. And so text eight and text nine, uh, Mina, you want to finish off text 9? Okay. Um, stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So we have the second component of, of what happens when, when, when distance is created. The fact that the, that the wife, that two weeks before they were intimate, but now she's forbidden to him. In other words, she has the same uh, category of, of punishment. If, if a woman, if a husband and wife are together, and when the woman is in a state of impurity, the category of punishment is called karet. It's called a, a detachment for the, uh, from the source of life. And, and that's one of the biggest punishments, or biggest punishment, biggest consequences that a human act, or that, that a person can have from his actions. So the fact that, not only the fact the distance aspect of it creates already a passion, but the fact of forbiddenness, you know, the fact that she's, the, the, the wife is not allowed to him. So that itself, when the wife becomes uh, in a pure state, th th that connection, it has also this aspect of, of, of stolen waters or bread. Yeah, stolen waters are sweet. I was going to ask about... Just to clarify, so the sweet versus pleasant, is the first sentence implying that, um, I'm trying to explain it the way I'm thinking about my head, like the stolen waters are sweet, the sweet is like a, a lust, or is that is that what it's referring to versus the eaten in secret? I don't know, the pleasant, is that referring to 
I think that eating uh, the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. I'm not sure what is the, the explanation of it, but the first, the first phrase means that something that is in order to achieve needs to be forbidden. In other words, something that water that someone steals it and drinks it is sweeter than water that he was able to go ahead and grab it. Mm -hmm. In other words, the aspect of, of forbiddenness creates a certain oh, I see. passion, you know, a certain I see, I see. aspect of, of, okay, you know, specifically because it's forbidden, I want it. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's what is implying here. That, that makes sense. The, the, the forbidden <clears throat> aspect has triggers to a person that, okay, now I want it. That makes sense. You know, you're playing with, with, with kids and, and, and you, want, you want your kid to play with one certain toy. And he doesn't want to play. So you start playing with it. Suddenly he wants to play with it mm -hmm. also, you know, because if he's able to take it away from you, so then it's much better right, to play right, with right, it. Right. <laughs> so this idea also, you know, it, it, the, the psyche of it, um, it applies to husband and wife as well. And then we have what Neta were saying, text 10, we'll see about the beloved friends. Uh, Josh, want to read text 10 and text 11? Yeah. These are actually two of the blessings that we say at the chuppah. We say seven blessings. Two of them are what you're going to read. Text 10 and 11. Grant abundant joy to these loving friends as you bestowed gladness upon your created beings in the Garden of Eden of old. Blessed are you, God, who gladdens the groom and bride. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who created happiness and joy, groom and bride, rejoicing in song, delight and cheer, Love and harmony, peace and companionship. Soon, Lord our God, may there be may there be heard in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the sound of gladness, the sound of joy, the sound of the groom, the sound of the bride, the sound of rejoicing from grooms at their weddings and young people at their feasts, feasts of song. Blessed are you, God, who grants joy to the groom within with the bride. These two songs, there is um, in the text ten. The first thing that says is these loving friends i was going to say that these loving friends i think is a nice um uh touch to the wacha because it all i feel like when you're using the word friends it's implying that they have a um that it isn't just that um lust or whatever it's the that is not into of, it. right that it's it's about the actually getting to know someone and having that deeper connection which makes you friends and then um it almost makes that connection that much more holier yeah. Because of that. As we said, yeah. Yeah, that's because exactly the Because I feel like in, 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 like, you know, any kind of, um, I guess, non-Jewish wedding you see on TV or anything like that, you never hear couples described as friends. I feel like that's not a way to really, we really, we really hear couples being described as. Um, so it's um, interesting that it's used here. I like, I like, I like the, the, the concept of it. In other words... Yeah, that's exactly what, what we're, where we're diving into now. Mm -hmm. And in other words, the same way as we said about the chukim, you know, that, or, 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 or the idea that intimacy or sex happens or it's the most appropriate with two people who are married. In other words, not only these two people come together in friendship, but these two people even commit to a much deeper relationship they relate, and, and they get married. So marriage is a, is a result of, of that closeness. Now, being married doesn't mean that they're not friends. No, God forbid. You don't want, you, that's actually also an essential part of marriage, being able to laugh and being able to, you know, have conversation. That when you go to date, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who you know you could be friends for life. Mm -hmm. that's, that's everything you'll get out of dating. You know, you're not gonna get out the connection of intimacy, and that's not going to happen. But the connection of, you know, if this person could be a, f a friend for life, so that could happen, and that's a crucial um, component as well. Now, the, according to Judaism, we, we recognize this relationship of, 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 of two friends. And the question is if, if the, the, not the question, but if the couple is always in a state of, 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 of contact, is in other words, is always in a state of, not only being friends, but also being, uh, um, but also being uh, um, um, intimate. So then the question is, when do you give time for for the relationship of 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 for the relationship of friends to flourish? Mm -hmm. Okay, you say okay. Through someone could say throughout the day, you know, but apparently that doesn't really work. 
Nevertheless, the fact that the Torah gives, or one of the advantages with keeping Talat HaMishpacha is that we give space for both aspects to flourish. Not only the, the intimate between husband and wife, but as well, what is two friends or everything else, you know, the, the, the emotional, the, 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 the intellectual, and all the other connections that make the fabric of the marriage or the, that fulfill that's what we say in the blessing. And as well, we see in the text 11, and it's even in the two columns in figure 3.4, we see that the blessing describes a lot of, excuse me, describes a lot of um, uh, um, ways this celebration. It says, And over here, they specifically make a distinction that four of them is talking something, is talking about um, the love and closeness aspect of uh, marriage, and the other four are talking about the desire or the distance relationship that we have in marriage. Um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna I'm gonna keep the last. We're gonna stop the 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 course over here, the the class over here, because. I could like go through it, but I'd rather keep it for next time and, and not run it. Um, but yeah, but so, so the, what's, the, what's the point? The point over here is that number one, keeping Tarat HaMishpacha is, 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 is the, it's the design for, for a healthy marriage. And we see all the benefits that come from a healthy, from Tarat HaMishpacha, even on a psychological and on a, on a mutual and relationship aspect as well.